0: You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Hello, Michael.
1: Andre, how the hell are you? I understand that you uh, you were on a trip, which I, I was supposed to be on as well.
0: I was on a trip. Did you know that they grow wine on the south side of Lake Ontario?
1: Yeah, the Finger Lakes is what you're talking about?
0: Absolutely, I'm talking about the Finger Lakes.
1: I'm Michael Pincus from michaelpincuswinerview.com.
0: I'm Andre Prue from andrewinerview.ca.
1: And uh, Andre, I, I do I have apologized a number of times. We uh, I just got, you know I just got back from Italy and I just and I was leaving the following day, so I couldn't go with you. It sounds like
0: uh, you're just rubbing it in, but I mean, it was a bit of an adventure trying to track down the special guest that we're about to speak with.
1: Yes, and uh, that we found him or that you found him in the Finger Lakes is even more exciting. I think especially for the Finger Lakes region, let's be honest.
0: Well, yes. I mean, to be honest, I was heading down to the Finger Lakes looking for a scoop uh, because we are talking to Paul Hobbs of his eponymous winery and uh, Vino Cobos.
1: And Stratus.
0: And Stratus. I mean, he's a consultant winemaker in a few places, but... uh, I mean, I was drawn to Paul. I had a chance to watch him speak at a tasting that was hosted for Stratus on August 24th last year, and he spoke so passionately about this region, uh, Niagara specifically, but also the Finger Lakes, uh, that I just knew that we had to get him on the podcast. So uh, I tracked him down at his estate. Um, there is no winery on the grounds, but there is are some vineyards that uh, are taking shape uh, on Lake Seneca. And, um, I mean, I had a chance to speak to Paul Hobbs about his winery, about the industry, about my favorite topic to talk to winemakers, global warming and climate change. Um, I guess without further ado, here's my conversation with Paul Hobbs, which is without Michael, because he was too busy traveling to Italy.
1: Yeah, well... You Know someone's got to do it first off. I really do appreciate
0: the time, like, I know how busy you are, and you know, the family stuff going on. But we should say where we are we are in the right here,
2: else. we're in the Finger Lakes, right in Sanca Lake, and uh,
0: Watkins Glen, right adjacent to the house we're recording. There's a brand new vineyard
2: taking shape. Sure, is yeah. I, I bought the property. Well, my brother David helped scout it. Yeah, I'd say, and maybe my brother Matt also had a bit of a hand. This whole thing came partly out of a long-term seed that was planted, I suppose, because of the fact that I grew up in Niagara County, New York State. And... But I think um, there were a couple of gentlemen in Rochester that approached my brother and they wanted to invest in the a winery here. Okay. And so I think they were like the catalyst, if you will. I mean, the, the seed was already there, but it was just like they, they put the water on it and fertilize the whole concept so they wanted to, they wanted to help you know finance a, 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 a vineyard or more really a wine if you will um so that that was the i think that may have been around 2010 or 2011 that they came to my brother and my brother was sort of like thinking well you know i'll run you know they were going to do some exploration. Where would we do the project and so on and so forth. Well, I had that very clear in my head, Finger Lakes. And I know I wanted to do Riesling, from coming back to New York State. It's a variety that I love. It's kind of the variety that got me going okay. in, my, in my career. Okay. And um, even when I was at Davis, I mean, it was one of my favorite, but particularly in the, you know, in the beginning as I was learning about wine. For some reason, Riesling was a great segue into other wines. And then, um, well, finally I, you know, when I started really scouting the area with, with David, um, I would spend a little time with him. He would um, get to know kind of what I was looking for, what didn't work, and so that he would continue the effort when I, I wasn't here. And uh, we came to this area, we finally settled more south than north, yeah away from the lake, lake Ontario away from the lake effect, that's proved to be very good okay. <laughs> that, was a, that, that proved to be a good decision but also I like the northern part of the lakes better because they're steeper okay and uh, I wanted to have to ensure that there's going to be good airflow and good water drainage on the site and then probably the third reason was the fact that this the southern parts of the lake are, have the shale and slate. They give far better drainage. So much rockier soil is much more difficult, but they have beautiful slopes just like you see. And uh, so that was, those are the criteria that really we settled on. So David was the one on the
0: barbecue upstairs. Yeah. So when I talked to you and met you in August of last year, you were talking about how you did have a bit of fruit on the vines this year and you weren't sure if you were gonna do anything with it. And uh, he told me that you didn't do anything with it. Right.
2: Uh, why? How come? Well, frankly, uh, and it's a good thing, because uh, last year, we didn't know this at the time we made the decision, but I have a German partner, he has a minor percentage of the, you know, six-some percent, uh, six, seven percent, but it, it's a Johannes Salbach, and he really pushed uh, to have the fruit, but I felt the vines were too weak, and so I wanted to put the effort into forming the plants, and that, that proved to be a good decision uh, in retrospect because last year we suffered a, a pretty strong drought here in this area. I mean, it was broader than this area, but really it was, it, we had to irrigate young vines here, which I never imagined we'd have, and we had to do it with it, you know, we didn't have any setup for that. Tractor and a watering can, eh? Yeah. yeah. Did, were you able to, to save the vineyards, or did you take some damage to it? <laughs> Well, the interesting thing is the vineyard that we planted in 2014, which already had a couple of years to establish some roots down deeper, we water we watered once. Okay. And that would have been the vineyard that would have carried fruit, had that been what we had chosen to do. This year it will carry a crop. It still won't be a large crop because things didn't really grow that much last year. Okay. You know, yeah. it was it was sort of like a, you know a year in limbo, but um, things are really pushing strong this year with all the rain that we've had and I suppose our pepped up energy there.
0: So, so one thing I've noticed today from tasting here and uh, comparing to what I'm used to down in Niagara is the climate here really does seem parallel with, with what's in Niagara. Is that really the case or the, what, what do you say is a big difference between the Finger Lakes and what's happening in Niagara?
2: Climate-wise there's not major differences. Uh, you're going to get winter kill here winters are cold uh, we have the buffering effect just as that region does but different lakes yeah. um, what's really climate wise that's different is, is that this is much hillier or even you could say semi-mountainous mm-hmm. um, and that has you know as it's well known that mountains have or hills have an effect on climate mm-hmm. so we have more breezes more wind and uh, as long as it's not excessive, that's usually a good thing. <laughs> Fair enough. <clears throat> because those breezes help keep things dried out. The other thing I would say is the, they're they're also in sort of a rain shadow in Niagara and the Lake. So I'm not prepared technically to speak to which region gets more rain or less, but I think they're fairly similar. There's a rain shadow for them, and we're we're kind of in the same similar situation here in South. This is definitely
0: the not the vintage to be talking about rain shadows,
2: though, because
0: I think it's been pretty wet everywhere along this uh, this corner of the country. Continent. Right,
2: but but here we've had four inches of rain. Okay. In Madison, Virginia, where I was yesterday uh, working on a project, they have had eleven inches of rain in May. Okay. Almost three times as much. And in Ontario, there's been more rain. Yeah. Um, and my mother told me that Long Lake Ontario, in Niagara County, where she lives. That um, the Army Corps of Engineers has been out, yeah. the New York State Department of Environmental Control, because the lake is so high that it's eroding the banks of the lake, and they're quite concerned about that. So they've had a lot more rain there, and when I landed in Rochester last night, it was raining, but not here. Yeah. So, yeah, we're a little further south, and that just takes us out, puts us more into a drier climate here.
0: So with the first crop then coming up, when are we going to see a, a tasting room or facility take shape here? Yeah. I'll tell you what. <laughs>
2: that's uh, sorry, looking for the I, soup. I, I look, you know, show me the the, the money. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you the truth, um, the problem is this project is taking a lot more money to get it up and going than I than I anticipated, and that's it, why my partner in part like my, we never imagined how expensive this would be. And I understand, you know, we we, the amount of engineering first off, and then the construction for retention ponds and swales and this and that drainage uh, to manage a a very steep site like this was much more than I I wasn't prepared. Okay. So what we're looking to do is to work with some, hopefully, custom crush initially. Okay. And I, so I think we're probably five years, maybe before we build. That's not. That's a very. If we do it that fast, that would be a very fast track approach compared to what I typically do. Okay. Normally, it can be like Paul Hobbs winery before I had my own winery it was over uh, twelve years before I had a winery, and in Argentina when I built Vina Cobos, it was another. What was it was eight or nine years. So if we do it in five. I'll be. I'll be pleased.
0: Fair enough. I guess maybe with the the uh the lack of infrastructure just the old school infrastructure the costs are still a little lower than setting up in somewhere than. yeah the good thing
2: riesling riesling is actually relatively you, you don't need much press some tanks chilling equipment and very small simple pumps it's really far less in <laughs> th- the making of the wine it's a fairly the winery is a fairly simplistic thing nevertheless um it's still you know I don't know what it'll run we haven't we haven't even worked gone to design let alone build so I don't I don't it could easily run a million I could run a million and a half I suppose because yeah. we, we really want to do a, a place it's not just a winery but it's yes. also a place to receive people to give uh, education on wine and maybe I think the New York State law allows this I mean I think it would be terrific if we have the capability of also presenting and showing other wines that I'm involved in around the world, from Armenia, Dakar, France, the wines I mentioned from Argentina, California, yeah. and so on. So we'd like to be able to showcase those wines here as well, if we can. That'd be really interesting. And sell to see. all to the
0: Something to look forward to. Yeah. Um, I guess, let's talk about what's going on in Niagara. You were just up visiting uh, Stratus and uh, working with JL on, uh, on some current wines. What's, uh, what are you excited about, or what's going on at Stratus right now?
2: Well, what I love... You know, Stratus. The the, the key thing, and, and I still think this is crucial uh, for the region, is that today I think that Ontario and, and Niagara on and the Lake is sort of like it's like that hardware stores that if we don't have it, you don't need it mentality exists. Right. You know, a lot of varieties, but it's difficult. Apart from ice wine, the region doesn't have an identity for a variety or two, and I think that's major problem. I have said this on this podcast several times. <laughs> Great. Well, then we're well-aligned on this topic. <laughs> and I think I like I the movement. I mean, when JL came into Stratus, I think he came with the idea of trying many different things. It was really the right approach. So we've been in a weeding, if you will, or fitting process. Of yeah. Which varieties is the highest and best use of the site that, that Stratus has? And are there even other better sites um, that we have, you know, we've done some exploration, but are there other sites that we think could serve? So, is it Riesling? Is it Chardonnay? Is it Godello as a white uh, as white wine varieties? I think Cabernet Franc particularly does beautifully, clearly better than Sauvignon. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. I couldn't agree and, more. <laughs> and clearly better than Malbec because Malbec is not. Winter
0: tolerance. I think we only have a handful of people even even mucking around with with Malbec in the region yeah. in the first place.
2: That's probably a good thing.
0: I would agree with it that. Doesn't, as well. It doesn't <laughs> survive
2: the, those those cold winters, doesn't it? Yeah. The last big one that we had was pretty hard on it.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, that, you're talking about the Malbec <laughs> at uh, at Stratus, right? Yes. And uh, yeah. well, I understand that came out pretty well. In the Semillon came out a, a pretty good as well too. Because the have quality much. is good.
2: It's just that you know, as a grower, you'd yeah. be like. It's extremely risky to plant.
0: So are we going to start to sh- see a shift of what's happening in the vineyards? Because I know right now Stratus has a reputation of having the odd balls and the one-offs. And I mean, one of the great things about Stratus is their reputation is staked on the assemblage. Like you can take Tanat and toss it into a red blend and no one is expecting it to taste the same vintage after vintage because that's all comes down in the blend. Like that's also a
2: good variety for there, Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, Tanat Traditionally, it's South Southwest France or or uh, Uruguay, mm-hmm. and uh, those are both warmer climates. But this uh, the region does produce a great tinoc. No, I think they will continue with that. But I'm talking about like a core lead variety. They're they're going to weed some. They're already doing it. They're already weeding away some. I don't know. They have over thirty varieties. There. I mean. Yeah. They had more varieties. They have more varieties at Stratus than you can find in the entire Napa Valley today. Yep, that's <laughs> yeah, that's very true as well. So I, there's a little more focus it is uh, essential not only for Stratus but I think for the region, and I think Stratus has sort of come to agree and they're moving in that direction. But I, I'm impressed with their whites, um, maybe more than their reds at the moment. I think uh, their Chardonnay, for example you're talking, you
0: talking about the region in general or, or Stratus so I'm
2: going to say that I don't know the regions well enough to comment in general but fair enough. But with Stratus I think I'm, I'm really impressed with their whites yeah. and particularly these later efforts that JL and company have worked on are, are super they, you know, they would stand strong in a blind tasting Yes. international blind tasting against Chablis or Burgundy you know granted there might be stylistic differences but the creme de la creme kind of tasting. I think it would behoove them to do one of those. Maybe you would want to be a part of that. And we'll uh, see what we'll see yeah, what. It I makes a noise we'll if, if if uh, Niagara comes out well on that end.
0: We'll see. We'll see what I can line up. And those tastings happen once in a while. We usually do pretty okay. You just mentioned uh, Uruguay in, in passing. You're doing
2: something in Uruguay as a consultant. Okay. Yeah. And you know, I have a little import company in the U.S. because we import Vina Cobos wines. Yeah. The brand that I have in. Argentina, but yes, <laughs> Uruguay. I, you know, I, I started working in Uruguay in the 90s. Okay. I, did, I did a three-year stint with the Inter-American Development Bank, okay, sponsored program, and they were, ho- they were sponsoring uh, three countries, and each country three projects, yes. all in agricultural-based mm-hmm. projects. And so wine was Uruguay, along with sugarcane and some other thing, beef, I think, okay. were the industries that were looking to help bolster... So, um, but Uruguay in those days—I'm—I'm I'm talking like '92, three, four, five, or something that—that uh, that period of time. Uruguay's wine industry was tr- truly on its knees. There was no money anywhere. Uh, all their viticulture was following one mantra, which I think was suitable for high production. This professor out of Montpellier, France. Convinced seemingly, I mean, he was like, he must have been like Jesus. He went there and they got all the same religion, they planted everything exactly the same. Okay. But it would never make good quality. I mean, okay. it was, it was good, good for high production on heavy soils. So when I left that project, I was a little bit, you know, I, I don't know, sort of pessimistic about the future. Well, something happened between now and then because I've been back like now for five years. Okay. And they had somehow found. Capital. They had f- somehow started cleaning up the wines they were making, and really, I was whoa, This is different. A different. They, however, they did it. I still don't know really. Um, now they're they're planting much better sites. They're planting high quality vineyards, state of the art vineyards there. It's small, but it's beautiful to see what they're doing, and the quality of wines are exciting. Particularly, you know, for me, it's all about the not there.
0: Not okay. What about white bridles?
2: No, I think white bridles would do well. Okay, Uh, I haven't been focusing on whites. Fair enough. But uh, it's got a a climate conducive to whites. So you have your winery in
0: California with your name on it, and it's uh, making Cab Sauv and Chardonnays. What we've been seeing at the LCBO, very high quality. But you are always seem to be very forward looking in terms of where you're consulting and where you're working. So you've got uh, Cobos in, in Argentina and you're consulting everywhere. Uh, where do you think, I guess, is sort of the, the next big region that we're going to see or, or where, where are things going to have to go? I mean, you've just come off of, what, four drought years in a row in, in, in California. Like, where, how is viticulture going to adapt to suit climate change and what's just going
2: on? Oh, there's a, that's a meaty question. There we go. Yeah. Well, um... The good thing is, and particularly I see this, uh, you know, I can't speak to all we 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 perceive or we call or term the old world, but the old world seems to adapt generally more slowly than the new world, and it's, and you know, I, uh, climate change seems to be quite real. I mean, will anybody be able to prove it to everybody? I don't know, but things are not the same, and. Uh, I haven't flown over the glaciers, uh, but I have been, a, a, you know, for years. I've been, I've just completed my 29th harvest in Argentina. I've seen the Andes for almost 30 years. Well, I have seen. I actually, have, I completed 29th harvest but I've been there for 30 years, and uh, they're just not carrying the amount of snow they used to. So, will that change? Is that some sort of suddenly it'll go back? And now, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. If, weather's funny that way but mm-hmm. I have to you, you kind of have to say hey if there's a possibility we should at least do our best right and how does viticulture going to compensate well there's lots of challenges I mean if storms are more severe frost could be more severe so then how do you protect vineyards from frost if rains events are more intense during the growing season uh, how do you keep the vineyard from washing down the hill I saw this problem in Burgundy, and they have done nothing. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I was like, "This is uh, ten days ago, or actually two weeks ago now." Um, that I was in Burgundy on uh, Saturday, it, it came a barn or a gully washer came through, and all those high-priced vineyards you just see at the topsoil just running down down the middle of the row, out into the avenue, and right down through Main Street. Wow, it's it's breathtaking. And yet they, they still cultivate the way they do. They still so I think um, what we have to do is think differently. Okay. You know, that's just, you've got, you've got to be nimble, you've got to be, you've got to be flexible, you've got to adapt. And um, most of solu- those solutions are known. I mean, technology, uh, equipment, it's not as though it's not available. You just have to have the will to put it into play. Uh, but when you're starting to deal with, I guess,
0: sort of intervention to fight fight climate, is this not going to make production
2: of wine more expensive? Potentially, yeah. I mean, essentially, um, we also may have a higher standard. I mean, first of all, viticulture is much better than it used to be in terms of understanding and managing vineyards. So that means less use of pesticide, less uh, hard... Work of the land. And so I think it's far more sustainable farming today than maybe it has been in the last 50 years. So, years when there was a modernization. Now, maybe if you go way back, when it was just a horse and plow and this and that, well, they probably didn't do too much damage that way. You yeah. know, they didn't have fancy pesticides to work with. But I think today it probably could be even softer than it was in the old times. And so I think with that, Sustainability is a good thing, but I think we can, we are, we have they also accepted more failures, not only in, in in terms of quality in the vineyard, but in the wineries as well, because they didn't have the techniques that we have today. To, sort of like the same as in medicine, you know, you go to the hospital and they can do a blood test, they can figure out what's going on. In the past, was well, we don't know what that is. We don't know how to treat it, so you just lay there and hopefully you'll get better. <laughs> Drink some whiskey and you'll feel better or something. No, fair enough. I know, so I'm, I feel that, um, but things are expensive. So when you yeah. have very pricey grapes, you know, there's, a, you, you have uh, a task to ensure that you make good wine from missing years that, you know, financially can be devastating. Yeah. Lands are expensive. So all that game has changed in the last, in my, during the period of time of my career. I, I do think that that's really interesting because I mean you're
0: just talking about it just seems like you personally are very aware of the impact of what you're doing is is whether it's pesticide or equipment is having on on the soil and and, and keeping a vineyard going. I think like there are certain companies that they, they focus so much on on eliminating technology from the process that they're overlooking the benefit that some of it can have and they're doing it for the sake of, of doing it. It's a balance. Yes, definitely a balance. I mean, you
2: see uh, some farming companies that are very conventional, and they don't, do not give back to the soil. They do not give back to the site or the land. They just look to take. And that's what gets ag- agricultural bad. Those guys give agriculture a bad name. Yeah. But then you have other guys that are really wedded to these, you know, schools of thought like, uh, well, you could just say biodynamic farming. Yeah. And you know they're they're extreme in their view in the sense that they, they they just follow it, you know verbatim. But I don't even think uh, its inventor, if you will, or Rudolf Steiner ever intended for it to be be looked at that way. I think he intended it to be a, a system of that you would consider in in your situation. Yeah. And so it was never developed for vineyards anyway. I mean, was, I don't think it had vineyards <laughs> in mind. <coughs>
0: Yeah, it makes for a hell of a marketing tool when you got people doing the wizard dances in the vineyards and yeah. burying stuff. There's some mysticism <laughs> that some
2: people really get off on. But you know what I've found uh, traveling around is that most people are pragmatic. And yes. most, most people understand that that's a balance. We do, we do embrace uh, the concepts. Um, if you balance it out. you think about all those things and not just get locked into one religion.
0: Yeah, I don't. Th- I don't think I could have said it myself. Like, I, I obviously haven't been drinking wine as long as you, but I know from visiting vineyards all over the continent and in Europe now, um, the best wines I've tasted are from the guys who will stand there and be like, "Listen, I'm not going to tell you this is uh, this is um, biodynamic or uh, shoot, I'm drawing a blank on the word." Just organic. Organic. That's the word. One hundred organic. Or organic. But you know what, like. I'm not going to risk losing my vineyard. If I have to spray, I'm going to spray. If I have to do this, I'm going to do that. But I don't want to, and I don't if I don't have to. And those are the people who are making the best wines, from
2: my experience. I, I think you're right. I mean, uh, well, it's the same... I mean, if you're so holistic, is it the only thing that you ever use where a one-man school of thought about farming, which is Rudolf Steiner's bio, you know? Yeah. as one man. I mean, but let's say farming existed... But well, we know, for example, in Armenia, the oldest known winery is over six thousand two hundred years old. Oh wow! And these guys are still farming in the same area, and it has to be sustainable because they live off the land. Probably not that differently than they. I mean, they have electricity today, but um, it's primitive. And and they're farming their soils are smell. They smell spectacular, and they never. If you mention Rudolf Steiner, it's like, what are you talking? <laughs> it means nothing to them. <laughs> So I think good farming is whenever you really care, respect the land that you live on. Uh, We, for example, I have a young family, and we live in one of our vineyards. And while everybody's up in arms about vineyards, you know, and they see pesticides, some some people, it's amazing how many people believe that organic farming means no pesticide. No, it's Which is just the opposite, almost, more pesticide. But it's using
0: very specific things.
2: Yeah, it's organic. Yeah. But they may have to apply it three times more, and it still doesn't work. Whereas, and so it's the same school of thought, well, I guess my kid is sick. Should I just use herbs and so on and so forth, or do I go and get help and get a solution? So it's a balance. I mean, I don't, the problem is some, what happens with you, with us as human beings is that, well, you know, we just overdo everything. So we see see a simple tool, and then we overuse it. I'm, I'm so we have
0: to be very mindful of that. I'm, I'm hoping now that we've seen like, I know even for myself, my, my background is, is broadcasting and I've seen the pendulum swing one way in terms of, of digitizing and, and plugging into a computer and, and recording and now it's starting to come back <laughs> and people are seeing the value in analog. But the thing is even that analog recording is going to end up on a computer somewhere along the step. <laughs> right. So just we can end this more on a high note now that we've talked about how the planet's falling apart and we're hoping that the <laughs> venues can survive. Is the world ready for a a, a riesling re- revolution? You've got your vineyards here that we're hopefully going to be uh, seeing some wines from soon. And you just came from from Niagara, and you, you I know you spoke very passionately at that tasting in August about cool climate uh, cool climate winemaking.
2: Well, I just walked this site today. Good. I mean, and I'm being in Canada two days ago, and then in Virginia yesterday. Uh, there's a lot of good work going on here. When you go to Riesling, per se, I mean, this, re- this region, from my... I mean, we've got the weather conditions, we've got the soils, we've got what makes great vineyards. And I think Riesling is super strong, but I think it, it needs to be made more dry. Chalken, super chalken. <laughs> I just think more and more people... I mean, I hear that all over the place. I mean, it's not just here in the U.S., but, I, you know, I hear it. In Europe and also Asia, they want their rieslings dry. Okay. So I, I'm gonna see. I mean, we are just gonna stick our neck out there and make make wines and see what happens. See what I mean? It's going That's why we're starting small. I mean, this site is maybe when we're all finished, we could put a total of 45 acres of vineyards. Some of it up to 50 degrees. Or fifty percent incline. That's you know we're going to do some of the whole family hand harvesting
0: these these grapes. We may have to. Nobody <laughs> else would
2: have in the right mind would do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, I, I can't really know yet. But I do believe that um, people love drinking Riesling. It's one of the greatest of all the white varieties. You know, from my perspective, it's Riesling and Chardonnay. Those are the two, and I I love. A couple of others as well, um, but for greatness, I think Riesling has it can be great. It, it's got nobility, and that, and it, so now it's a question of how it's made. I think if the site is great, so we're going to find out.
0: Can't wait. Stay tuned. Thank you very much for your time, Paul. I really Thank appreciate you. it.
2: Cheers. Cheers.
1: Andre it was a very interesting interview. Uh, I like that the family is is in the background every so often. Yes. I thought that was kind of funny, and and you said to me later that it was in his house, and uh, I know you were very respectful of his time. You said, "I'll give you give me half an hour," and and I think that was twenty nine minutes and five seconds.
0: I think I think that's exactly right. Uh, I mean, it was really interesting to to see. It was uh, his daughter's convocation, who had graduated from Cornell program of viticulture. Uh, his brother is taking care of the the project in the Finger Lakes, and I still just am blown away the fact that a, a winemaker who kind of has his uh, hat hung on Chardonnay and Cabernet Sauvignon from California talks about and waxes uh, poetic about Riesling. But I guess that, that bodes well for our wine region if uh, a winemaker like Paul Hobbs thinks that, that Riesling is, is just that special.
1: And as he said, it's one of his favorite grapes, if not his favorite grapes. So I, I always find that very interesting that um, certain winemakers uh, have favorite grapes or hated grapes uh, to some extent, and love to work with them or hate to work with them and still make good wine. And just to link it all back to Ontario, I remember uh, Natalie Spikowski, who used to work for uh, Rosewood, um, hated Cabernet Franc, but made some of the best Cabernet Franc I have ever had in my life.
0: It is interesting how that, how that does happen, but I mean... It, it, with uh, the story happening, I know Paul Hobbs is still and will be consulting at Stratus for the near future. So hopefully we'll have a chance to catch up with him in the future to see the project as it uh, progresses. I had a chance to taste some very interesting wines in the Finger Lakes. And if you go to AndreWineReview.ca, keep an eye on there. I'll be um, writing some notes on some of the places that we we visited. Um, and, uh, yeah.
1: Speaking of speaking of Stratus, let's, I just want to put a mention. I just saw that stratus has released a rose yes under stratus rose not wild ass not tollgate not any of the other labels that they have stratus and i think that's their first is that not am i not correct
0: I'm actually not, not sure about that, but I mean, we have had an interesting year for Rosé. I get a little bit skeptical when I see Rosé push north of $20, uh, but the Two Sisters Rosé, which is, I, I think, about $29 as well, is simply outstanding. Uh, standing Rosé. Southbrook has a Cabernet Rosé, which is, I mean, it's certainly one of the best Rosés, if not the best, that Southbrook has made, and it's pushing at $29. I mean, these are not... Uh, I'll use the word crushable. Like, these aren't bottles you crack open and chug down on, on the patio they're a little bit more austere and, and refined and concentrated with with fruit but definitely worth the price of admission to, to check these out
1: uh, andre i i see a podcast coming up let's uh let's pencil in sometime uh, mid to late july our favorite rosés of summer so people can enjoy them through august and september
0: oh god i hope people are not going to get fed up listening just talk for like an hour and a half about rosé
1: oh they better not Alright, All right. I think that should be it because we're now totally off topic. I want to thank Paul Hobbs for meeting with Andre. I know how difficult that can be.
0: I want to thank Paul Hobbs for his time as well. And just remember, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, leave a comment, leave feedback. Uh, you can follow us on various social media at Andre Wine Review, at The Grape Guy. Uh, I think you need to end with the catchphrase, Michael.
1: Good night. Thanks for listening. Please
0: subscribe
2: to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.